Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we will be discussing customer service and client retention. With me today is, as usual, Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And welcome. And so let's start off with the question of customer service, client retention. What does this have to do with being a freelancer? After all, isn't it just doing your programming or doing your graphic design or whatever it is? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. It's not just that. <laughs> so Eric, why don't you start us off with a definition? What are we talking about here? Yeah, so generally speaking, it's pretty easy to reason about from the perspective of a consumer. You know, you have, say, web hosting, since we were chatting about that a little bit earlier, and your web hosting company has some concept of customer service and retention. If you have issues with your hosting, you're going to call them up, they're going to help support you. And if you tell them that you want to fire them and you want to get a different hosting company, there will be some concept of retention. They'll want to keep you around. But in general, the work that they do is going to retain you as a customer. So I think it's easy enough to understand that with you as the consumer, you as the freelancer might wonder what this has to do with you. And I think that probably it requires you to start thinking a little bit differently over the course of time of your business especially if you come from the salaried world, you'd think of like, you know, I have a gig or I have a job and I have that for a while and then I move on to the next thing. So what do I care about retention or customer service, so to speak? And or isn't customer service kind of trivial? Like, doesn't that just mean doing good work for the customer? And I think, you know, what we need to get into is that the answer to those things is no, like it's not just a matter of that. You want to start thinking of things not as like one and done gigs, but as customers who may give you repeat business. And so when you start to view it through that lens, it isn't just a matter of delivering a good product, it's delivering a good experience for working with you. So I think to summarize, I would say what we would recommend doing as a freelancer or as somebody who's building a business and eventually with equity in it is to make sure that you're thinking not just about delivering good work, but creating a good experience for your customer and then encouraging them over the long haul to do additional business with you, even if it's not contiguous, that maybe they call you in a year or two and they want to work with you again. So does that kind of square with how you're thinking of things here, Reuven? Absolutely. Look, marketing is hard. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Finding new clients is hard. So the best thing you can do for yourself and for your business is get more work and thus more income from the same existing clients. And it's just impossible to exaggerate how much easier that is. And that's, but it's only easier if they're happy with you and comfortable with you, not just with your work, but with the relationship. At the end of the day, it's all about personal relationships. I continue to be stunned that one of my biggest clients is this like Fortune 50 company, maybe not Fortune 100, I don't know, but like they have two people running training for all around the world, one in charge of North America and one in charge of the rest of the world. I literally can email them and say, I have the following dates open. Do you want them? And they say yes, or they say no. And that is as formal as it gets until we actually do a full PO. And it's only possible because we've had a great relationship for years. So they might be a huge multi-billion dollar bureaucratic system, but because we have a good personal relationship, it cuts through all that bureaucracy and they get what they want and I get what I want. And it's fantastic. If I just shown up, done my work and not put not put time and effort into that relationship, 
it would not be nearly that easy. I'd have to work much harder for each contract. And I've made that mistake, I should say, many times in the past of not nurturing the relationship. And so it's a long series of lessons that I've learned. Yeah, I can echo that when I think about both my consulting travels over the years and now the last four years or so with Hit Subscriber. There is nothing easier than somebody with whom you've established a good relationship having reason to do business with you again. So one common case is the one that you just mentioned, the um, you know idea that we have like repetitive ongoing need. There's another one that we see a lot and hit subscribe since so many of our customers are Silicon Valley and venture-backed companies where the personnel in those companies bounces around a lot. For us, a big one is there's a person that's working at company A Company A grows, that person decides they want to go work at company B. The first thing they'll do is give us a call. So this is, it's relationship management through the person, if not through the company, but it can be both. So it could be somebody bringing you along to a new company, or if you're talking about a larger company, it can be that a past personal relationship at the client, they go to work in a new department, or they get promoted and they bring you to somewhere else within that organization. But those relationships hold up and they make it very easy to get repeat business because when these folks are reaching out to you, it's always through this idea of like, hey, let's just spin up the thing we did last time. So you both understand exactly the rules of engagement, how it's going to go. The expectations are there. There's a path for success. So it isn't even just getting the business. It's that like the onboarding And the discovery and all that is a lot easier because they know exactly what you've done before and you know what it's like to work with them. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that this happens in terms of the mechanics of the engagement, but the groundwork for build a good relationship by delivering good work product, by making their experience good, and then, um, you know, good things will happen down the line. It'll make every aspect of your practice or your business easier But it all really predicated upon you thinking of your clients, not as jobs or even gigs, but imagine that you're delivering something to them and what you're doing is bearing in mind over the long haul that you're hoping for a repeat of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of people changing jobs and keeping the relationship, I think part of the reason I've been able to get away with not doing so much marketing is because I can depend on people in especially high-tech companies to go from job to job Mm. on a relatively frequent basis. So people look at it from the outside and like members of my family who are not in the high-tech world say, oh my God, that's nuts. People expect to change jobs every year or two. And from my perspective, it means I'm just sort of seeding the ecosystem with people who know who I am. And on numerous occasions, when a company calls me, I'll say, where did you hear about me? Oh, well, so-and-so working for us said they were at your course once before, and they recommended you. And so people will remember. And we all know that there are plenty of people in high tech who are brilliant jerks. Mm -hmm. And no one wants to hire those brilliant jerks ever again, if they can at all avoid it. (laughs) If you're a nice, not-so-brilliant person, they will hire you. They will seek you out because nice people get the job. So do make an effort to be nice, even if it's just an act. But it's better if you're actually a nice person. Yeah, at least don't rub them the wrong way. You know, it's interesting talking about the inbound aspect of it. I was just thinking how even if you're running a little dry for inbound, outbound works this way really well, too. Like when you go off on your own as a freelancer, you tell all your friends and family, like, hey, I'm starting my own business. And you probably got a lot of business from doing that initially Mm. because people want to help you. They like you. 
But if you do your business for a while, but you've been nice, you haven't been the brilliant jerk, you've made a good impression, even if people aren't actively reaching out to you, if you just reach out to a past client contact and say something like, hey, it's been a while, and I don't even mean you're trying to sell them business, just, hey, how's it going? What are you up to? It's been my experience that one in every five people you reach out to like that will be like, oh, I'm glad you emailed. You want some work? Like, even if you have to do some outreach or relationship management, it lays the groundwork for that to go super well, too, the way it did when you initially got the word out to friends and family. So inbound and also outbound, it's just like, I think of happy past clients as like this money tree that you can go shake and money falls out of it. Like, that's the metaphor that's in my head versus you have no tree like that with strangers. I like that. So let's try to operationalize this a little bit. Like what steps can you take? What things can you do with your existing clients to make sure that they will be happy to feel like you're communicating with them and they're communicating with you that you're on the same page so this can happen? And the first thing we'd written down here was regular meetings and updates. And I was terrible about this for years. And it took me not one, not two, but probably like a good three clients getting upset with me to finally internalize it. I mean, on one occasion, I had some people working for me and we provided them with some software and said, okay, we're done, enjoy. And they were like, wait, 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 this is not what we wanted. And why didn't you talk to us in the middle? We're not going to pay for this. And the list of complaints went on, on, and on. And if we had talked to them on a regular basis, let's call it every week, every two weeks, that problem would not have occurred. On the contrary, they wouldn't have been upset with us. They would have been delighted with us because they would have had a hand in shaping the software. And it was only years later that I realized, okay, if I'm working on projects, and it's not the same in training, I really don't need this so much now. I have very few meetings with my clients, especially the existing ones. But like, whenever I did a consulting job, after a few of these, I realized having a weekly meeting, just if it's, even if it's 10 minutes, just to talk over things over, where are things, what are we expecting, makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I think I'm fully with you there. Like the one way that's easy in the beginning for a freelancer to create a good experience is what you're really after. I think one of the core elements there is predictability and like shortening the feedback loop so you don't go in wildly different directions. So if you're a freelancer and you're used to doing work for hire, you've hung out your shingle and you're kind of, you know, doing multi-month or even multi-year projects the easiest step to me seems to be like, let's set a regular check-in. You could almost model it after something like Scrum. Like every, you know, two weeks or something, I'm going to deliver you some updates. You're going to review them. And we're going to kind of retrospect on what's happened and lay out the plan for what's next. Just doing something like that, I think would be really valuable. But I'd expand on it to say, you want to create predictability in the sense that you've done this before. So you want it to be less like you get hired at a job and you're sort of passively waiting for your employer to tell you, oh, okay, we have check-in meetings, this, here's what we do, et cetera. And you kind of come to them when you're talking in discovery and say, when I'm working with clients, I like to check in every so often. Here's what I'm going to update you on at those points. You know, I'll raise any red flags. I'll do this, that, or the other. Just sketch out some kind of process. And the main goals for me would be, number one, giving them progress updates, and number two, closing the feedback loop so that you're making sure that you're both in agreement on what should be happening or kind of table stakes. And then, you know, you might have a section of that periodic check-in call to give them the opportunity to give you feedback and ask, how's this going as far as you're concerned? Throwing it open for feedback, and I suffer from this myself, where you're anticipating something you don't want to hear, like negative feedback. It's a strong incentive to just avoid feedback, but like negative feedback after two weeks is a whole lot easier to hear than negative feedback after two months or six months when that negative feedback is, you're fired, I want to sue you, 
after two weeks, it'll be like, hey, do you think we could move a little faster? You know, whatever. So I think, yeah, the regular meetings, giving them progress updates, just making sure that you're aligned with expectations and everything, but like creating predictability, I think is is very important there. Absolutely. I mean, I had a big client for a number of years where for our last like two, three, four years together, we had a weekly or biweekly meeting and it changed everything because I could say, okay, this is what we've delivered. And what are you expecting? Like, here's what we're going to be delivering the next few weeks. Does that need to change? How's this going to affect the business? What's on the horizon for the business? Like, what are you planning to do six months a year from now? And I was talking to the CEO about this typically. And so it meant like I was part of the business. I wasn't just like writing code. I was really a part of the strategizing over the business, which meant that they saw me in a different light as well, which was really good. And I started to say this to clients then, this is my expectation. If you're going to work with me, then we're going to have a meeting once a week, once every two weeks, something like that. It has to be on a regular basis. It might only be 10 minutes, but it probably will be 30 minutes to 60. Let's block that off. And that's just part of the way we do business to make sure that you're satisfied. And in my experience, people like this. They saw just taking them seriously, not just trying to you know milk them for some more money. Oh, yeah, I think that's great. I can think back over the years. And another element of that, like what I was getting at with like predictability and customer service too, is this is what I expect if you're going to work with me and people liking that. It's you're laying out like this is how things are going to go. So from a sales perspective or in terms of how the customer thinks of you, that it looks like you've done it before. Like you've thought these things through. You're thinking about what they need. Like we're going to have this periodic check-in. The agenda is going to be such and such. Like I could see somebody who's new to freelancing being worried the client is almost like a boss and you're like telling the boss how it's going to go. I don't want to do that. They will appreciate it and it makes your deliverable better. So I love that concept because it establishes their predictability. And, you know, something I think I've often said in this podcast and in in general that I'll say is like, somebody is going to bring structure to the engagement. And if you don't do it, it's going to be the client. And if it's the client, it's probably not the structure you had in mind. So if you come into it with some structure, we're going to have these meetings and these check-ins. It's a good experience for them. And it also, you're like striking first, if you will, in terms of defining what the relationship should look like. Excellent. Next thing we had on the list in terms of like customer service and client retention would be upselling. And this is, I would say, both something we can and should do. This is part of the communication we can have, but it's also an incredible opportunity. I start off teaching one Python course, like my intro course. And then some clients start asking me, hey, do you have anything more advanced? So I said, oh, yes, of course I do. And so now most companies I work with, I teach both intro and advanced. Oh, wait, the intro was too advanced. So maybe I have it now for non-programmers. So over time, it grew to be like 10 or 15 different courses. And now I can offer them a whole menu of options. And I can even say to them, oh, your people are interested in topic X. I have a course that addresses that. But it gets even better than that, right? Because I have one big client where I mentioned at some point, and I should add, you should mention your upsells. You should mention the other options because your clients are not going to be going to your website to find out what else you offer. And I learned this because I have this big client. And I just happened to be chatting with a training manager after class one day. And I said something about Git. She said, wait, wait, you teach Git? I said, yeah, I teach Git. She said, I can't believe it. We just signed a contract for someone to teach Git. If I'd known, I totally would have signed with you. But all right, it's too late. So six months later, she calls me and says, oh, my God, that was horrible. We just finished our contract with this person. Would you please come and teach Git? And there you go. Like for the last three, four years, I've been teaching a Git course once every quarter for this company. So it's more or less free money, and it fills my schedule and so forth. And if I had never mentioned it, then it never would have happened. 
I love that you bring up people aren't going to go to your website and just browse. That's an easy thing to think. Like I have this website up, it's got my offering ladder there. And so people are going to go there. I think as service providers, we tend to think people visit the website a lot more than they do and pay a lot more attention than they do. They're not out there thinking like, how can I give this person more money? (laughs) So you will have to find a way to work in upsells. Now, upsell is a little weird if you're freelance on your own at first and you're basically just doing kind of generalist custom work. You might think like, well, what do you mean by upsell? Like, do I charge them more money? No, you don't charge them more money to do the same thing. You would have to build in some kind of concept of offering ladder. So if you're doing like custom application development work and maybe it's winding to a close, some form of upsell might be that you offer to do like discovery for another type of work. It's a little hard to mention in generalities, but it would be something in addition to what you normally do. So if you normally come in and, you know, say write code, you know, just at their direction or whatever, an example of an upsell might be something like that you do like a legacy code assessment or something where it's basically something other than what you're normally doing that they could purchase from you in addition to your normal services. So the first thing I'd say when it comes to upsells is I would start to think through for any freelance service provider out there, what does your offering ladder look like? Because if over the long haul, you're just going to sell hours of custom work, that's kind of a slog. So start to think of things you could offer. So in Reuven's case, we're talking about training, different kinds of training, like different lengths, different levels of expertise, et cetera. With my business, hit subscribe these days, you know, we'll sell blog posts, but there's other things we could do. We could sell white papers, higher volumes of blog posts, strategy engagements. So when you have different things that you can bring to bear for the client, almost like a menu that they can pick from, that's where you're getting into the territory of upsells. And that's where the client's not going to know what all you might be able to offer. So you need to find ways to mention it. But I think, you know, in the interests of a good customer experience, it can't be, hey, my real motivation here is I want more revenue. (laughs) You need to be sensitive to what they could actually use. So I love your case there, Ruben, like where they're coming to you and saying like, oh, you know, if only I had somebody that was offering Git. Hey, what a coincidence I do. Like, it's really about looking for opportunities. What unmet needs are there that the customer has? And how could you help? And then broaching that discussion and done right. It's not slimy. You're not trying to like wring more money out of them. It's, oh, you might not know this, but I could also help with this unmet need that you have as well. With hit subscribe, we established some SOPs. Like when it comes to upsells, number one, you have to be able to identify, because I don't handle our account management anymore. We have a team of folks that are doing that. They have to be able to understand a concrete need that the client has, like to be able to articulate that. And number two, there is, I don't remember the length of time, but you only mention every so often the idea of an upsell Mm -hmm. because you don't want every check-in call to seem like you're just trying to sell them stuff. That's not a good experience. So it's like if we've made an upsell conversation in Q1, we don't do it again or something. So the lesson I guess I would extract from that personally is you want to be sure that you're mentioning upsells, but put a cap on how often you mention those upsells. Right. I mean, I've got one big client where they invite me. Like, it's such a big company that they can more or less offer. I mean, I could basically schedule myself 100% with them if I wanted to. And mm. they're always looking for more courses. So they actively say to me, what do you have? And so if I give them two, three completely new courses a year, they love this. And so I can use them in some ways as a test bed. Hmm. And I also try to use, and this is like something I've been doing for years. At the beginning of a course, I go around, and I ask people, why are they taking it? And that's my market research because they'll give me some tidbits about what they're actually using Python for. And then if it dovetails with things I'm interested in, 
then I can teach not just this general course, but specific ones. So over the years, I said, okay, if enough people mention topic X, then I'll develop a course for topic X. Can it be a day long or half a day long? Suggested to this company, and it's this feedback loop then. They love that, so they ask for more. And then I can offer it to other companies as well. You do have to be sensitive to how you say it, right? Don't just say, hey, I want more money from you, but I've noticed that your employees really could use some help in X and Y and Z. And if you're just coding per hour, yeah, that's going to be a slog. And it's also sort of hard to upsell from that because if you say, oh, you're you're hiring my expertise for, let's call $100 an hour, great. Oh, you know, I could do a security audit, but that's going to cost you $200 an hour. And they're going to say, huh? (laughs) Like, why is your time suddenly (laughs) twice as valuable depending on what you're doing? So getting out of the hourly development hamster wheel is, I think, not necessary, but will help a lot in that sort of upselling, unless you have products to offer on the side as well. Yeah, I think if you're mainly engaged as a generalist or something doing hourly work, that the only form of upsell that you're going to have is something like a product, or if you have a book or something, you know, maybe. But it's tough. So I think you do need to work on maybe a suite of productized services before the upsell piece becomes relevant. I guess the only upsell I can really think for generalist work is your term engagement is drawing to a close. You know, the project you were working on is over. You sell them on another subsequent project, either right afterwards or down the line, is really the only thing maybe you can do there is just sell them on a longer duration. So that particular piece of the client relationship probably isn't as relevant for the generalist. One thing I want to point out that you mentioned that I think is kind of an intermediate to advanced like tactic that I really liked is the idea of identifying a client that's more game, if you will. Because with every discipline I've been in, I've had a handful of clients that kind of are like, we really like you and trust you. And we are a little more on the cutting edge of things. We would be happy to pilot things with you. Like for hit subscribe, we have a few clients that are like that, that are like, hey, let us know anytime you come out with something new that you're doing. Because especially if you're going to offer it to us initially at a discount, you know, we love to pilot things. So like be on the lookout for customers that really like you and are comfortable with you trying new things. And I say this in the generalist, like hourly mindset, because if you've identified one of those customers, that could be the perfect proving ground for like, hey, I'm going to do this paid discovery product as service offering or something. Those clients can be a good way for you to try out new potential upsells. Right. Testimonials and feedback. So I am on the one hand, I think, good at this. On the other hand, actually terrible at it. I'm good at the asking for it to some degree. With my corporate clients, basically, (laughs) I tried and they all say no. Like they all basically say, we refuse, we're big companies, we have a corporate policy never to do endorsements, never to do testimonials. But my B2C clients, my online clients are often willing to do that. They have no compunctions. So I have, if you buy something from my online store, 30 days later, you'll get email from me automatically saying, hey, what did you think? And if you respond, well, it goes into my mailbox and I immediately say, like, you know, write back and say, thanks so much. Would you mind if I use some of your words in my marketing materials? And I'd say 90% of the time, people are like, oh, sure, go ahead. So that's where I'm very good at it. Where I'm very bad at is actually using those words and putting them on my website and using them in the marketing materials, which I know would actually help. But people are surprised if they're happy with your product. They are surprisingly happy to tell others about it, too. Have you found that? I certainly have. Yeah, it's certainly been my experience that there is a decent cross-section of the population that will make a referral simply to be helpful. So if you do a good enough job for them, 
they will refer you to their friends or acquaintances for no other reason than to be helpful. Like it's the way you might tell somebody about a show. I watched this show on Netflix and it was awesome. You know, it's not like the show is giving you an affiliate cut or something, but you want to tell your friends about it because like, hey, I've got this thing I think that would be really, you know, interesting to you. It's the same kind of thing if you do a good enough job. And it doesn't have to be that you've like, you know, solved cold fusion for them or something. But just if you're reliable and you do good work, a lot of times they'll make an introduction or give you good, you know, words and praise simply because of that. I guess I have some pieces of advice on the testimonial and feedback. Like you certainly want to be earning referrals. That's like the holy grail because it cuts out a decent cross section of your sales funnel in that you're just on the phone with a warm lead who's predisposed to doing business with you. But what we've learned when it comes to feedback and testimonials, I put these things into two camps. So a thing like a testimonial becomes part of your marketing and sales. Feedback can also factor into your service delivery. So when I'm saying I'm talking about dividing this into two concerns, one would be I'd like feedback so I get better at the service delivery itself. And that can be a slightly different kind of conversation than the one where it's like, I want feedback, but only that's positive so I can convince other people to do business with me, which is a testimonial. So if you're looking to understand how you can improve your service delivery, that can be sort of an informal internal conversation that you have where it might be, you know, at your weekly meeting or whatever you just have, hey, let us know how we can improve. People might be blunt or honest about that. You're not going to say take that information to your website and advertise it, but it's helpful. So for that type of feedback, regular check-ins are good. The kind of thing that you were discussing earlier where like maybe you were having people fill out a form, all of that's valuable on the feedback front to improve the delivery. On the testimonials front, what we do for that, that I think has been pretty helpful, whenever we're having meetings or if we're doing email exchanges or whatever, just in the course of doing business with the client, Whenever we see something that's complimentary, we'll put it into a database and say, you know, this person said this. And we just have a pretty large backlog of that stuff. And then later, if we want to showcase that in some way as a quote, we'll go back to that person and say, hey, you know, we have you in an email that you said this. Do you mind if we like use it on our website or what have you? That's so much more likely to succeed than going to someone and giving them a homework assignment where you're like, hey, I want more business. Can you dream up something nice to say about me? That's a deer in headlights. Like even if somebody wants to, you know, imagine yourself in that position, right? Like even if you want to help someone, you're like, gosh, I don't know. Like, can you ask me about this next month? I'm busy. Versus if it's like, hey, you said this about me, then it's like, oh, sure. Throw that up on the site. Also the idea of like big corporate clients not wanting to do official endorsements one thing I might suggest there, I mean, for what it's worth, but for anyone listening is we have two different levels. We haven't bothered to throw anything up on our website for hit subscribe in terms of testimonials. We probably should. We're having our website overhauled and I think they're going to want that. But in theory, I would put that up on the website if we had bothered to do it up to this point. But there's another thing you could do, which is a reference or maybe you have a piece of collateral that you send out that isn't public and so you can ask those people who are a little reticent to give a carte blanche public endorsement, like, could we tell somebody you said this? And if you do that, you might be able to, like in a PowerPoint where you're doing a sales presentation, have a quote from this person. And then it's a little like lower of a barrier to entry than, I don't know, Amazon or Microsoft 
praising you on the website where they don't want to do that. I've actually had clients say, no, 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 we cannot say anything like with any company affiliation. And there, I even have some clients where they say the mm -hmm. mere fact that you work with us has to remain secret. Like you're not allowed to say the org with us, which mm. is, I don't know, I don't understand that. But you just reminded me now, I heard this trick probably about two, three years ago, which is how do you get references from big companies that don't want to do it? Very easy. You have a podcast and you invite their people on your podcast. And then suddenly it's not an endorsement, but it's implicitly like, and you can mention, oh, and our work together, this and that. I thought that was like brilliant and sneaky. And as the, I can't remember who suggested it. It was someone on Twitter, I think. My mind was blown. She said, everyone wants to be interviewed. Everyone wants to be on a podcast. Everyone wants to be famous. So like, that's a sneaky, brilliant way to get around it. You know what? That actually just triggered in my mind. I don't know where I saw this, but this is even more sneaky, but it was like... <laughs> It's not a testimonial. Give them an award, like That's our most innovative was. client of 2022. That's right. <laughs> totally forgot about that. Yes, I think we might stay at the same place. Right, you're right. Brilliant. I was like, wow, it sounds like, I wish I could remember if we saw the same thing where this was, because it sounded like somebody was saying the barriers to entry are way lower. They'll be like, oh yeah, of course, you know, we'll accept an award. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then you can list them on your site as having received our client of the you know month award or whatever it is. So I think like the upshot is you certainly want to, in terms of like client management, retention, customer service in general, anything you can do to accentuate good, successful relationships, you know, get creative about it. So the obvious thing is, you know, here's a big fat testimonial on my website, but like there might be other things. They might be willing to give you a reference, even if they don't want to go on the record, so to speak. Or you might be able to get away with something like giving a specific quote about you from, quote, a Fortune 500 CMO or like whatever. But figure out how to get that social proof. And I think like the feedback and testimonial kind of is this twofold purpose. Like you feed it one back into your service delivery to improve so you can do better by your customers. And then number two, to use that as social proof in your marketing and, and acquiring future customers. Excellent. So all this assumes that things are going well, or at least sort of well, with a client. What are some like red flags? What are things that you hear or see from clients that should make you say, you know what, this relationship, we better salvage it fast if it's even salvageable, because it's just going to cause me more pain than it's worth. Yeah, I think that just about anybody who's freelance for at least a little bit of time will understand this idea of doing a bit of disqualification up front, like looking for red flags, whatever those may be for you or not. If you're not, you should. But I think it may be you get into like more of a boiled frog situation where if you're engaged, unless you're just absolutely miserable and you fire the client or something, you don't necessarily revisit that. So like if you're going along, one thing I personally would recommend is probably around the time that you're having your periodic touch base with them just to maintain the relationship, but maybe even literally right after that meeting or something, you should ask yourself a series of questions of some kind just as a sanity check. So one of the things that we have internally with Hit Subscribe is kind of rag status. So like red, amber, green, you know, like a stoplight is what do we think of this client and the relationship and what do we think they think of us? So there's two there. And if you're just a solo service provider, you could say, okay, what do I think the client thinks of me? What do I think of them? You know, are they making me miserable? So even just deliberately asking yourself that question periodically would catch some of the potential red flags. And I'm saying this because I think probably for people to some extent, the red flags will be 
you dependent, at least in terms of what can I handle. I would say, for instance, a red flag is, are they consistently violating boundaries of some kind that you have? You know, have you said, I'm available to answer emails between these hours and they're texting you at midnight or something? But those particular boundaries are, of course, going to be up to the individual. You know, I guess, yeah, as I think about it, I'm just thinking of red flags that I would see during a relationship would be boundary violations. Another one is you've told them how you work and they consistently ignore that. I do one call every other week and they're like, hey, can we get on a call tomorrow? No, we've been over this. This is when I do calls. Like that kind of thing is a flag. I Not think paying. That, <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> That's a big flag. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else maybe you wouldn't notice in the moment but that comes up. I had something a few years ago. And again, like when I'm doing training, it's rare. I'll describe something in a moment. But a few years ago when I was doing like a programming project, we're going to do a programming project. And the company, like they're not a high-tech company. They're like a travel agency doing conferences. And someone had developed some software for them in-house. And we were going to take over their software and run it for them. And so everything sounds great. You know, they don't quite know what they're doing technical-wise, but that's fine. And we sit down with them for a meeting and they start talking about like credit cards. I said, oh, what's going on with that? And basically it came out very quickly that they were storing every single one of the conference participants' credit cards in their system, like in plain text. Ooh. And I said, okay, stop right now. Like we have to stop this. And they were like, why? What's wrong? And we said, okay, let, let me give you a long list of why it's wrong. And basically, they refused to budge. They said, we are not changing this. We're going to continue to continue to hold on to credit card numbers. I said, okay, like, we're out. <laughs> like, we're not going to work on this. And they were stunned, but they also refused to move. They didn't see the importance. I tried to explain it. And I just said, okay, I can't be held responsible for this. I don't want to have to deal with this. Mm. And I said, you don't want to be responsible for this either, because if the credit card company comes after you, you're in deep, deep trouble. So that was like a red flag that I hadn't even anticipated in speaking to them. Like it didn't even dawn on me that someone would do this sort of thing in this day and age, but it does. Yeah. A client asking you to do illegal or unethical things that you can't, it wasn't going to end well. It just was not going to end well. And there was another thing. What was I going to say? Oh, that's right. That's right. So I've got a client actually coming up in a week and a half, two weeks. We will see what happens with them. Cause I don't think I'm going to be on site doing a teaching, but basically this guy has all sorts of crazy expectations and it's for training. He was like, well, I know it's a two day course, but we don't have that time. So we're going to do one long day. And I said, well, I don't think people's brains can really get input that much information that little time. No, 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 we'll be fine. And then he starts going through this whole long list of other issues. Like it's a Git course. There's someone there who hates Git. So I've got to convince him that Git is great while I'm teaching the course. And the only reason I'm continuing to do this is I figure, okay, I'll go. He'll pay me a lot of money because I charge him extra for this long day. But as time gets closer and the pandemic is not like letting up, I might cancel on him or say, oh, we'll do it on Zoom. But like already it's clear lots of red flags from these initial conversations with him. And to some degree, you sort of learn these over time. After years of doing this, you say, huh, this feels bad. This feels weird. Or and I do this a lot, I run it by my wife who has a way better sense of what is weird and bad and I should not accept. And she'll be like, don't work with this person. This person is bad news. And virtually all the time she said that she has been right. That's a really interesting one because I've looked at things with myself over the years. So speaking of, you know, a wife, a partner, like if you're changing in personality in some way, so like maybe you're snapping more at people, maybe you're sleeping less, maybe your nightly glass of wine has become a nightly three glasses of wine. Like there are things that people living with you might notice that you might not even notice yourself. And that can be one of the most subtle but important red flags there are where like 
the customer and the relationship is slowly but surely eating at you and you're not processing it, but it's making you a different person. That is a definite flag because that can be a recipe for burnout. The main thing, if I were going to pack up the advice, it would be to like make a list of things that you know you periodically want to check yourself for. Because I think the biggest thing would be that it's easy to get, especially for those of you that are doing extended type engagements, like for Ruben, the kind of things that you and I are doing these days, I think there's, you know, almost they're too short or fixed in scope for this to really be a thing as much. But like, for long-term engagements, like check in with yourself periodically and make sure that you're not in some horrific boiled frog situation that no one thing ever jumped out at you, but you're miserable. You know, for somebody, if we're talking about customer service and client retention, there's a huge friction here with what we're talking about now. So these are red flags to identify in the relationship. What do you do then? Because you don't want to create a bad experience and you don't want somebody bad-mouthing you, but you want out of this relationship. So like, how do you handle it when this comes up? It's not going to be good. So the question is, given a bad situation, how do you prevent it from getting worse for you and worse for your reputation? And or exit gracefully. Right. Over the years, I realized if there's a client I just don't want to talk to because it's too unpleasant, that's a big red flag. Like I should be able to feel like I could talk to them. And if every time it's, oh my God, I don't want to talk to them, bad news. Yeah. So I definitely had some clients where, you know, I said to them, I don't think it's going to work out. Let's see if well, we can wrap this up. Sometimes I would say, I will make sure that someone else can, you know, can service you in the future. I will hand it over to them, whatever's necessary. But made it clear, no, this is not going to continue. This cannot happen. And sometimes I would tell the truth about what the problem was and sometimes not, right? There was one guy who was very late paying me and I still wanted to get a payment from him. So I wasn't going to tell him, hey, you're not paying me. So I said, look, I'm, I'm going to finish and I'll hand it over to someone else. And he was confused and frustrated, but it wouldn't have helped for me to say, you're not paying. Maybe I should have been blunt about it. They might badmouth you. They absolutely positively might badmouth you. You know what? The world's a small place, but it's also a big place. Like in Israel, everyone knows each other. It's a small country, certainly in high tech, people know each other. So you have to hope that the good will outweigh the bad, but it's not guaranteed. But it's better than continuing to let it fester and then they'll badmouth you 10 times as much. I think that's like my sense there. There's a lot of things you said in there that I really like and that overlap with what I do, like the idea of I'm going to hand this off to somebody else. So I have a few pieces of advice when it comes to firing a client, if you will. And a big one is don't leave them hanging. They have a need. You're telling them I'm not going to do it. Give them a next step. You know, I have a couple other service providers I can recommend or I'm going to do X to tie this up for you. There's that and there's like always be professional. And one life hack that I do is I always blame myself in that situation. And I don't mean blame myself as in like I'm doing a bad job or something, but more like I should have recognized when we were in discovery that this wouldn't be a fit and that's on me. I'm not the right fit for you. Instead of pointing the finger at them and saying, you're doing this, you're doing that, whatever. I position it to them in a way that's here's why I'm not the best fit for you. And then as a follow-up, here's how we're going to bridge this transition to make sure that you're not left in the lurch. I'm not just going to abandon you. And yeah, to your point, there's always the possibility. I mean, like if the client is expecting you to continue doing work for them and you tell them no, that always has the possibility to end in a bad review or something. But like I've found over the years, I'm not making this up. I've had an experience where I've fired a client in this way, like a very gentle, nice way. And a couple of years later, they've come back and asked if I do more work for them. So it will probably, if you're a professional, go better than you think. And if it doesn't and they badmouth you or something like ask yourself like this is something that helps me anyway is like play out the worst case scenario like what do they go on google and like leave you a negative review yeah that would be a bummer 
But if that happens, just go ask some of your good clients to, you know, leave you good reviews. And then, you know, you have a 4.5 rating or whatever. Like, it's not going to be that bad. And in all probability, the biggest odds of somebody bad-mouthing you somewhere, almost nobody hears it. Almost nobody cares. Like, it'll be all right. It'll be better than you spending the next year of your life miserable. Oh, my God, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Any last thoughts on this uh, subject before we head off to picks? I think for a freelancer, like I'm putting myself in the mindset of a service-based freelancer taking on a few gigs a year or something. And it's going to be a while before you really need to have a robust like customer experience program. But I would go and ask yourself, how can I make the experience of the customers I have more predictable and more consistent is really what you're going for. So in discovery or when you're talking to them, kind of lay out the rules of engagement. Like, here's how I communicate. Let's have a check-in every now and then throughout the engagement. And here's what we're going to discuss. So just think about, it doesn't have to be super formal or like heavy process. You don't want to overwhelm them. But like, how can I create a consistent experience that every one of my customers will have that feeds back in and lets me know how things are going, maybe tease up future testimonials. And that's really what I'd be going for is that consistent experience. You want to make sure that the lines of communication are always open. And I would maybe one thing that we haven't touched on is even when the engagement is over, set some calendar reminders to check back in with that client, not to sell them anything, but just, you know, hey, we did that, you know, website rebuild together six months ago. How's that going? Is everything okay? So basically throughout the engagement and even afterwards, a consistent, predictable, not obtrusive, but like customer-minded process. And you can probably bang out in an afternoon, we should have check-ins this often, we should talk about this. After the engagement, I should check in this often. Set all that up, it won't take you too long, and then just stick to it. And that consistency, you'll put yourself a head and shoulders above most of your competition. Absolutely, 100%. Look, I just spoke to someone who was interested in, I don't know, freelancing or just work in general. He was complaining that it was hard for him to find a job. And he said, I don't understand. I'm very good at programming. But like people expect me also to hang out with them at lunch and eat lunch with them. And they expect me to like go on you know, all the offsite days that are these fun days for the company. And they expect me to be friendly to them. And But my software is good. And I was like, that's not enough. <laughs> that is why you have not managed to, I, mean, I tried to couch it in like very gentle terms, but you need people to want to be around you. You need people to have a warm, fuzzy feeling from being with you. They're not just checking your code. They're seeing you as an entire human being. And while that was true for this guy as an employee, I think it's also very true for us as freelancers. They need to be satisfied with our work. They need to know that we're listening. They need to know that we're willing to improve, but they also need to know that like, They want to be around us and we want to be around them. We're not just tolerating one another. Yeah, being friendly, checking up on them, all this other stuff I think is really crucial. Eric, you got any uh, picks for us this week? Yeah, I'll do two. So the first thing that I'll pick is I'm not going to get into the specifics, but I'd say customer relationship management software, CRM. The one I use is HubSpot, so I guess we can throw a link out to that one. I'm not necessarily recommending that for a freelance practice because it's a heavyweight one, so we do a lot more with it than just that, but get yourself a free customer relationship management software. And the reason I'm recommending that for this episode is because it's a great way 
to, if nothing else, schedule periodic reminders to do some kind of outreach or to have a check-in with a customer and then capture notes from that meeting. So get yourself a little bit of tooling when you've decided, yeah, we should meet every two weeks and then I should reach out every three months. You're going to need something to capture notes, something to remind you to do this, something to help you schedule. And a good CRM can do all of those things for you. It's all baked into that. Good customer relationship management is baked into customer relationship management software. So get something like that. And then the other pick is just completely out of nowhere into pop culture. My wife and I, I don't remember when we did this, but as a nostalgia thing, we started watching the show Cobra Kai on Netflix. And I just thought it would be like a campy romp, which it mostly is. So for those of you who've never heard of this, if you watch the Karate Kid movies in the 80s, it revisits those characters like 30 years later when they're both like 50-year-old men. So Johnny, the bully bad guy, and Daniel's son, the protagonist. And it's fun. Like, it touches all that. Like, oh, I was a kid. You know, I watched Karate Kid, and this is cool. But in spite of it being sort of a sugary show that gets into a lot of teen drama, there's something compelling underneath it. It subverts the good guy, bad guy, very clear trope of the 80s. And it's a retcon where it casts the bully bad guy, Johnny, as the protagonist. And it's interesting to see, like, nuance retconned and layered back onto this very like obvious good guy versus bad guy show or movie from 30 years ago. So I don't even know if I can articulate exactly why I find it so like interesting to watch and fun, but I do. And my wife does too. And I don't know that she ever watched the Karate Kid movies and she finds it enjoyable. So it's worth a shot, especially if you watch those movies as a kid. Huh. You know, I'd heard about Cobra Kai. I've heard people also really praise it. I think I watched like an episode or two, and I'll have to go back and take a look at it. Huh. Very cool. So I'm also going to do uh, two picks here. First of all, before we started recording, uh, we were talking a bit about WeWork, and I just cannot recommend strongly enough the podcast We Crashed about the rise and fall, spectacular rise and spectacular fall of WeWork. It is like totally, totally crazy. And the other one is a book that um, I'm about halfway through now, and it's called Machiavelli for Women. This is such a great book. So it's written by Stacey Vanek-Smith, who's a co-host of The Indicator of Planet Money on NP. And she says, basically, if you're a woman and you're trying to work in the current world, things are terrible. And the way to deal with that is not by saying, boo-hoo, things are terrible. The way to deal with it is by saying, reality is terrible. And let's come up with strategies for dealing with that terrible reality. And you know who t can teach us a lot about that? Machiavelli. He was like, this is the real world, deal with the real world as it is, and then try to achieve power. And it is funny, it is clever, it is painful for someone like me to discover yet again how bad things are for women. And she says, you know, don't forget minorities. I strongly recommend it. It's fun and horrible at the same time, but just very well written. And there you go. So... We hope that this episode was really helpful. If you have suggestions, questions, thoughts, please do get in touch with us. We are always delighted to hear from you and especially ideas for new topics that we can and should explore in future episodes. Thanks again to all of you for listening and we'll be back next time with the Business of Freelancing podcast.